Welcome to the Nathan Crane Podcast, your number one source for everything holistic health. Listen to guest interviews with top doctors and health experts and discover cutting-edge solutions for living your healthiest, longest, and most fulfilling life. There's never been a better time to become healthier, happier, and more alive. And now your host, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, and cancer health researcher and educator, Nathan Crane. Dr. Thomas Lodi, what's happening? I'm back in Thailand. I was in the U.S. for a few months. I'm back here and uh, so happy about it. So happy. So we were, we were literally just talking a second ago about, you know, you were saying the, the future is people just sitting around all day on technology, right? Uh, gathering information, learning, educating themselves, teaching, sharing. Like we see that happening for, for good and for bad. Right. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, especially, you know, you work with so many cancer patients. You know, how is how is this new medium, which has been around for a while, but I think it's proliferating now more than ever, both good and bad. What are the things we got to watch out for the pitfalls? But how can we you know, use this best for our own health and well-being? Well, actually, about what you know, when the whole thing happened about uh what was it like March of 2020, it all kind of began. And, uh, and at that point, uh, I had, I had clinics in Thailand, nobody could come see me anymore. You know, Mm. the Thailand got closed down. And I had people from, you know, the Middle East, Australia, America, Europe, and they couldn't travel, Hong Kong, Singapore. So um, that's when I developed the program. I said, okay, well, let me, let me, let me give them a home program and then see if I can work with their doctor, whoever their doctor is and kind of teach their doctor, you know, like collaborate and, um, I mean, help them out. And it's turned out to be, you know, really good, but there are still issues still. The, the issues are fine. And that's the sad part is them finding a doctor wherever they are, who's willing to collaborate. And, um, you know, that's been the problem. In America, it's not difficult because we have a lot of doctors in the U.S. You know, who think this way. But in other parts of the world, it is, it is difficult. You know, what? I've got some good ones in Germany. I have one in Australia. I have, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to find. What do you find? In Canada, diff- of course. I, I, I have- yeah, what are you finding difficult working with? Uh, with other conventional doctors. So for people who don't know, you are conventionally trained medical doctor, but you treat cancer holistically. Uh, you have an MDH. Why don't you explain to people what the H means behind the MD and what integrative medicine is for you and how you treat cancer. And then, yeah, what, what's the difficulty that you're finding in collaborating with other doctors? Good, good. Um, yeah, I went, um, a conventionally trained medical doctor, MD. Um, and, um, although I've just for everybody's, maybe I'll explain it later, but just for everybody's sake, I've, for you to understand that I've kind of changed that. I no longer think that it's MD medical doctor. I think it stands for mythology doctor because the whole disease model to me is a myth. And I'll explain that later, but. And therefore, that's all. The, and, and believe me, in medical school, 
And I went to medical school, and you know, after medical school, I did my residency in New York and uh, at Columbia, which is one of the you know top ones. It's very good. And uh, we didn't study anything about health. We didn't study anything about nutrition ever. So, you know, I really don't think we should that, that hospitals should call themselves healthcare facilities. I don't think they should call them. Uh, sh they shouldn't say it's health insurance or they provide healthcare because they don't. It's not discussed. They don't know what health is. It's not part of it, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so I went through medical training and I did that for about 10 years. But I kept running into issues with the board, the medical boards. Not, and, and you know, the medical board won't act unless someone complains. But the medical board acted always because doctors complained. It was never patients because I never hurt anybody ever. Um, but it was always doctors complaining, you know, and basically it's because they were coming to me instead of going getting the surgeries. So it was kind of, it was almost like a, a labor union fight. And it's interesting, if you go back to the original, the reason why they formed the AMA in 1847, it was basically a labor union. The, the first professional union of physicians that ever existed in the United States was, um, I forget, the, I forget the, 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 the name, but it was homeopathic. Um, and um, that was like in the 30s, 1830s. After that, 1840s, for the AMA formed, American Medical Association. And then by 1890, I, I'm sorry to get off on this, but by 1890, uh, they realized that the homeopaths, the eclectic physicians, which are people that looked at, you know, had an eclectic viewpoint, um, and naturopathic, and homeopathic, I guess, yeah. we're all making $4,000 a year. And the, and the allopaths, the MDs were only making $1,000 a year. And that's, and that's when um, um, uh, Rockefeller Sr. and his, uh, and his uh, group um, hired Simon Flexner's brother, Abraham Flexner. And in 1910, we had the Flexner, the Flexner Report. report. And, yep. And that's it. And then from 1910 on, it, they took talk, over. Talk about um, the Flexner and, Report and, for people and, who don't know what it is. Yeah, basically, um, they um, it was based, you know, uh, Abraham, Abraham Flexner, when he was hired to do that, he met, by the way, well, he's not a doctor and he and he and, and he's not a professor. So it's pretty, pretty strange. He was hired to write a report on how medical education should go. What are the parameters? What, what should they be taught? What should doctors be taught? Um, how should doctors practice uh, the, uh, the profession of medicine? And that's what he was uh, tasked with doing. Um, and he got the job because of his brother, Simon. But basically he was working with a couple guys, uh, well-known guys um, that in those days who were, had trained in Germany. So they, they used it based on the German uh, the German medical training, which was very strict, very uh, and very one-sided, very um, what we now call science, um, and um, and that was it. So he wrote out this flexion report, and he said, "You have to. Uh, this is what medical education is," uh, and it was published in 1910. Now, what happened after that was that Rockefeller paid to have this um, uh, this curriculum basically is what it was to have this this uh blueprint of a curriculum or um what do you call it what would you call it 
It was kind of like, like a treatment, basically a treatment or an educational um, criteria, right? The like the syllabus, like this is exactly. what we are going to teach. So, so teach. to back up a little bit, right? So, and he, and so he Abraham, all these schools, right? So Abraham Flexner, right? And this is, you can find this on Britannica. You can find the history of him, right? He, like you said, he wasn't a scientist. He wasn't a doctor. He, he got the grant from the Carnegie Foundation to go and survey the 155 medical colleges that had already been formed. Right. And many of them had been using and teaching nutrition, homeopathic medicine, you know, natural medicine, et cetera, et cetera, right? And basically, and, and from what I understand is Carnegie, you know, they were starting to develop pharmaceutical drugs from oil byproducts. They, they realize that we can create drugs from, you know, all of this, uh, all of this excess, um, you know, oil byproducts, basically, and own the market. Right. And start funding, giving grants and donations. And they went around to all these colleges after the Flexner Report and basically said, look, if you implement these methodologies that we want you to, pharmacology, drugs, which they said science-based, evidence-based, which we know is not totally accurate at all, <laughs> then we will give no. you money. We will give you grants. And what they did was they put board members, they put people from their own uh, companies and organizations on the board of these schools to make sure that they were implementing what they said they were. And then who benefited? It was the, the Rockefellers, right? Through the massive investment into the right. pharmaceutical the, industry. Right. Exactly. I mean, exactly. And it was Simon Flexner who was working for the Rockefeller for, for us. It was junior now because I think it was in, in the 1898 uh, uh, Rockefeller senior had a, what, what they called a nervous breakdown. And he kind of gave over, he gave over his work to a, a group of people. And then he, not his son is interesting, but his son, finally got was given given the go ahead around 1910 around around the Flexner time. But anyway, yeah, so and Standard Oil, that's what they had, right? The Rockefellers had Standard Oils. So they had the petroleum. So they used the petroleum products for making pharmaceuticals. But they but they not here's the thing, they not only paid all the universities to now using this, I think they closed. I forget how many they closed. But um, it's all in my book, my book will be coming out probably really soon. It's called a true second opinion. And in that I kind of go through this history just to give you background of why you need a true second opinion, because you're not going to get one. If you go to any of the if you, you you can go to MD Anderson, and I'm not saying anything negative about any of these places. I'm just showing you that you can go, you know, the big ones in, in the United States are MD Anderson, Dana Farber, um, uh, Sloan Kettering and, and ones like that. But if you go to them and you want one opinion, then you want to get a second opinion and a third opinion, what you will get is three first opinions. You won't get a first, a second, and a third because they all operate from the same database and they all have the same algorithms. And that's because they all, you know, when you talk about conventional medicine, think about what that word means. That word actually means agreement by convention. If things are done by convention, they're done by agreement. So, for example, all of the medical, like every society, whether it's the American College of Surgeons, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, 
the American College of Neurology, uh, the uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology. Any of these college, professional colleges have algorithms of how the doctors must respond and what the doctors must recommend under certain circumstances. And that's it. And they don't deviate from that. The doctors cannot deviate. Therefore, you're not getting an opinion because the doctor's scratching his head, looking at all your lab work and, and having just interviewed you and saying, hmm, hmm, maybe we should do this or that or this. He's not. He's taking your diagnosis, which is just merely a descriptive name, right? I mean, adenocarcinoma sounds fancy, right? It just means cancer that started in a gland. That's all it means. Okay, but anyway, so they take that and they stick it into their algorithmic and I call it a sales algorithm and it's a sales algorithm and it tells them which procedures and drugs they can now sell according to that algorithm and that's what that is. So anyway, um, but you're absolutely right and that was it and yes, Carnegie got very much involved with it. So it was Carnegie and Rockefeller and, uh, and Abraham Flexer, he's well known as having written the document that changed medical education forever and now all doctors are trained with the same curriculum same thing which includes no nutrition and no health so when did you no health class right but like you you've told me um many other medical doctors i've talked to over the years have told me the same thing the most nutritional training they received when they went to school in all their years of med school was about four hours and most of them have told me that four hours, and you know, I'm not a doctor. And in the last 15 years, I literally have thousands of hours of nutritional research and training and experimentation, thousands. And I still don't know everything. And most of the MDs who have become integrative or functional MDs say when they went to conventional medical school, they literally had four hours of nutritional training. And it was on things like curing scurvy which is something we don't even worry about anymore they never hear anything now some schools are changing this and some newer doctors are going through you know they're getting more nutritional training but still today uh, i think it's pretty accurate to say most oncologists and conventionally trained medical doctors get very little actual nutritional training in school how much well, did you get yeah well i think we had i think we actually had a half a a half a credit, which was, and we were in six week blocks. So I think we had one, one hour a week for six weeks. So six and that was hours. it. And, so you had and, six, and hours. It, six hours, yeah, <laughs> six hours. And that was it. How much have you spent, and, and really how much have you spent on your own since then learning about nutrition, diet, lifestyle, natural tens of, solutions, tens of thousands and tens everything thousands. I, tens of thousands of hours because that's what I go and what's interesting to me is nutrition almost always answers a question because I get asked a lot of questions I mean for example um I had one on one of my live streams I do live streams every Sunday night at uh, 7 p.m eastern standard on all you know TikTok uh, Instagram and Facebook but anyway one of them was I have the PTEN um which is a tumor suppressor gene <clears throat> suppression. How can I, what's that mean? Or no, no, they called it mutation. And 
if you do the research, you find out that, wow, isothiocyanates, which come from brassica vegetables, vegetables, leafy will greens, bring that, will bring that back up. Right. And, the, and we all know the brassica vegetables are the are broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, uh, bok choy, arugula, you know, maca, things like that. Uh, even even wasabi. But 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 the thing that's interesting and I, and this is very important. And, I've, and anybody who has cancer or if you have a, a friend or a, love, a loved one who has cancer, understand something they misuse. And I do, they do it on purpose. And, I, you know, I'm no longer nice to them because I have for three decades watched in horror what's done to people i mean i and every day i talk to people from all over the world and i'm just shocked it's that it's still happening um uh but anyway they call it mutations and here's the thing if you want to know what mutation is i'm sure everyone has seen a high functioning down syndrome person with down syndrome now it doesn't matter what you feed the person or what you give them I intravenously, they will still have Down syndrome. That's a mutation. I even had a woman who did have um, a, a really low functioning Down syndrome baby, but she fed him raw vegan food. She, she was really, really strict about it up until he was like six or seven years old. And then she, you know, and then she started cooking some like 20%. Anyway, he graduated high school. He became a high functioning but he was still down. So what I'm trying to, my point here <clears throat> is that they misuse the word mutation. And the reason they do is so if you think you have a mutation, then you think, well, there's nothing I can do. Right. And, and, and that's not true. Right. So almost everything that we see gets downregulated or, or in other words, silenced uh, on the genetic expression and on a tumor is, 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 uh, is temporary. And it's only there right at this moment to support the metabolic needs of the tumor. At that moment, you can change that. You can change the tumor microenvironment. And once you change the tumor microenvironment, now the genes will change because now I have to turn this one up and this one down a little bit. Because remember, the genes are just there to uh, support the metabolism. And that, that's very, very important to understand. Even Let me... Take it even a little further. <clears throat> there is something in, 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 uh, in physiology called downregulation and upregulation. And this occurs with women with uh, their menstrual cycles, right? So um, um, at the early, right, right when a woman starts to have her period at the beginning, right, we see estrogen start to, um, uh, the estrogen is low. It's all been lost because the blood... That, that's why the period came out because progesterone came and the estrogen was down and the, and, the, and the inside lining of the uterus came out and then we had what's called a menstrual cycle, a menses. All right, so now um, that was sensed by the ovaries or actually by the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And it said, look, we don't have enough estrogen. So that signals the genes to upregulate, so it does that. So the upregulation occurs for a short time and now you start producing estrogen. Once you have too much, it downregulates it. So the same thing happens with cancer. When, when a cell loses the ability to use oxygen and glucose because 40% of the mitochondria have been destroyed, those are the little organelles inside the cell that produce energy. When 40% of them or more have been, uh, be, have been rendered dysfunctional for whatever, because you live in the 21st century. Um, 
that now the cell has to ferment. And in order to support fermentation, it turns on this and turns off this and turns on that. It's not mutations. So please understand that and that you still have control and you can bring it back. You can right. bring it and, back. And we're going to talk about that. And, and what I call, what I have theorized, and I think you have even talked about this, we've talked about this, of what cancer actually is, is a survival mechanism right? The cell is trying to survive. That's how I see it. It's literally, it doesn't, it's just trying to survive, but it's very, it's been damaged. The mitochondria have died off. The DNA has been damaged. Chemicals, toxins, we can talk about what causes cancer. It's pretty clear actually when you, when you research what it is. Most doctors today don't know what causes cancer. They're not taught. They think it's genetic. They're not quite sure. They say maybe it's in your family maybe it's too much alcohol or cigarettes which it could be for some for for people but there's there's some very clear causes we can talk about uh i'd like you to talk about but when that cell you know the cell is damaged the mitochondria have died off like you said and uh i see it as just it's just trying to stay alive it's just a survival mechanism it says look i can't function properly so i'm going to ferment to create atp very inefficiently only creates what like three atp instead of two. uh or two ATP instead of 36 or 38 from a, from a healthy cell. So it's just trying, but it has to wrap. The reason I think it rapidly uh, replicates is because it's so inefficient. It's trying to keep up with the energy production of a healthy cell. And so it, it replicates out of control. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, th that's exactly it. And, and I, and the term, the term that's used in biology is called homeostasis. So uh, uh, homeostasis is maintaining functional integrity regardless of what happens. And in the humans uh, and animals, we have several, we have, a, we have a biomechanical, physiological, and a biochemical homeostatic responses. So if someone pushes you, your left leg, this way, your left leg will automatically go out and biomechanically, you will, homeostatic, you will maintain balance and it's the best thing, it's the healthiest thing for you. It maintains your function, your integrity. You don't get hurt. Physiologically, you're eating too much greasy foods. Your arteries get plugged up. Uh, they start narrowing. Your body says, wait a minute, we got to keep the blood flow in the brain and the heart and all that stuff. So we got to increase the pressure. So you increase the pressure. So that's what the, that's a physiological homeostatic corrective response. But, but you go to a doctor and they're going to say you have a disease. They're good. And this is the myth of disease, I guess it comes in right about here. So um, you, this is the myth of disease. It's not a disease, it's the body engaging in a, in a, in a, in a corrective um, um, survival mode. Because in the same thing as you were saying with cancer, if the blood pressure was not increased when you, with you having your, your arteries blocked from eating pizzas and um, you know whatever, bacon, things donuts. like that. If you, <laughs> donuts, too many, right. Too many donuts, too, too much soda. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All that stuff. If you, if they weren't blocked, I mean, if, if they're blocked and your blood pressure doesn't go up, then the, you won't have enough blood flow to the brain or the heart to stay alive. So it's basically, it's a way to stay alive. Yeah. So that's what homeostasis is, is how can, how does the body maintain its function um, uh, as well, as good as possible under the circumstances. And that's exactly what happens with cancer. It's a homeostatic corrective response, even diabetes, right? You're eating too much glucose. The body knows, even though we don't, but the body knows that glucose, yeah, it's important, but it kills if you get too much of it. So it becomes insulin resistant. That's not a disease. That's a corrective adaptive response to maintain 
functional integrity, life. So what happened with cancer is the same thing. You knock out the mitochondria and it's got to stay alive so it starts to ferment. And fermentation, by the way, is the most fundamental way that even a lot of single-celled organisms, um, that's how we make wine and cheese, fermentation. But it's very inefficient. It only gives you two energy molecules for every glucose, two ATPs. So whereas, as, as, uh, as Nathan was saying, if you have an intact mitochondria, six oxygens, one glucose give you 38 ATPs. Well, that's a big deal. That's 19 times two is 38, which means that this, this fermenting cell is 19 times less efficient at producing energy, so it needs 19 times more fuel. So what does, this, what does, the, what does the cancer cell do? It upregulates, upregulates uh, insulin receptor production, and we can measure Cancer cells have more insulin receptors. They also have more um, transferrin receptors because they need more iron. And it's measurable. And what's very interesting is you can even, if you were to look, take a few samples of cells and look at the volume of insulin receptors or the volume of transferrin receptors for iron, um, you can even say, this person probably has stage four or stage three. You can tell by the number of receptors. That's how important this is. But anyway, those are just two things that happen. Other things happen. P53 gets turned down. PTEN gets turned down. All of the things get turned down. So everything that gets turned on and everything that gets silenced is done to support metabolism. And that metabolic need, the new metabolic need now, is that we need 19 times more glucose and we've got to make the best out of it because we still need all cells, by the way, just, and this is known by um, biologists, need, need an average of 57 kilojoules per mole, regardless if it's an elbow cell or a heart cell that's beating at 120 times a minute. It, they all need 57 kilojoules per mole. That's it. You don't need to know what those units mean. It's not important. It's just that I just wanted you to know that there is a number of how much energy a cell needs, regardless of what it's doing. Now, so, is that that's and, a healthy cell or is that also a cancer cell? Well, no, it's a, even a cancer cell. So even, even a, even a rapidly. Yeah. And, and, and actually, Otto Warburg discovered that um, in, 19th, in, the, in the 20s. So even a cancer cell or a healthy cell, whether it's a brain, you know, whether it's a quiescent cell like an elbow cell versus a heart cell, which is beating, they still need that much energy to run the show. And, and we know that about 55% of the energy that a cell produces from the, whatever it brings in from the environment is used just to maintain the shape of the cell. The other 45% is used for cellular function. So the heart can do the heart stuff, the liver can do liver stuff, kidney can do kidney stuff. But 55% of the energy that's brought in from, you know, oxygen and glucose or whatever the cell brings in, plants do something differently. Whatever it brings in, 55% of that energy is just to, for the cell to exist. So, um, yeah. So you're right. It's a homeostatic corrective survival response. And that's what cancer is. And that's why I would really like people with cancer to understand that cancer is not this thing that got into you like an alien. It's your body adapting. And therefore, with the conventional model, which is the doctor says, I'm the general, I'm going to war, I declare war on the tumor, we're going to kill that tumor. And he gets his soldiers and he, and he goes, to, right, which is nurses and technicians, and they go to war against that tumor. 
Well, it's that's the wrong paradigm and your body is the battleground and that's where the collateral damage is and that's why it's such an, a, a horrible failure, that paradigm. So that's not what's going on. What we need to do, and it's very simple, think about this. What if we did this? What if we restored mitochondrial function? Oh my gosh. Now the cells no longer by definition ferment. It's, since it's no longer fermenting, it's no longer cancer. But we don't even talk about it. It's not in any of the therapies. You've never heard this before. No one's ever said, how do we restore mitochondrial function so that the cell goes back to being a healthy cell? That, and you know, anyway, there are ways. I, there are ways. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We've, we've, I've dove into this deeply with you and many other uh, experts for the past decade plus in my documentaries, summits, docuseries. So the reason I'm doing this podcast now is because um, while we've been able to thankfully reach and help hundreds of thousands of people with uh, all of those series and get this information out to to health seekers around the world, you know, this information needs to get to tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people to realize what's possible. Because like you just said, the current approach for cancer treatment is is very sad and it's very ineffective we know if just look at the statistics you know the reason why the entire focus is a five-year survival improvement i mean that's the whole focus of cancer it's not did we actually completely reverse the cancer and improve your quality of life did we help you Gen, you know, create more energy and heal this disease and feel better and have, you know, uh, reclaim your health and eliminate the pain. It's, did we extend your five-year survival rate by 2%, by 3%, by 7% with the chemotherapy, with the drugs at any cost, at the cost of destroying your immune system, at the cost of causing two or three other diseases or pharmaceutical dependency, at the financial cost of putting you or your family into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Hey, I just wanna take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. As a special thank you for tuning into this episode, I wanna give you my number one Amazon best-selling book, absolutely free. You can go download it right now at Becoming Cancer Free. Com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. All right, let's get back to the show. You know, I talk with cancer patients all the time, just as you do, and you know how damaging all of these treatments and this you know, financial burden can be on people. And the problem is, is people are not given the truth. They're not given the facts about the treatments. Now there are some conventional treatments that, that do pretty well, right? Testicular cancer with chemotherapy. I think it's close to a 50% um, cure rate with that, but that's pretty rare. Most cancers with chemotherapy radiation have, you know, the largest study ever done on chemotherapy that was in Australia and the United States, 160,000 plus people found that uh, chemotherapy across 22 major adult cancers only improved five-year survival rate by 2.3%. And not to mention the quality of life and the financial devastation right. that you know occurred in, in all these people's lives. So 
I'm not against conventional medicine. I mean, I think you're, you're more hard on it uh, than I am. I think there's a time and place for some of it. But what I think people really absolutely need to understand and to learn is exactly what you teach people and work with cancer patients with is, look, this is not only primarily preventable, but cancer is a diet and lifestyle related cardio, uh, or, sorry, not cardio, metabolic disease, meaning, right, that it is primarily, if we get, if we figure out how to restore the mitochondria, if we figure out how to restore a homeostatic metabolic uh, functioning in the body through diet and lifestyle and environment, then we can take control of our health. And you see it all the time with your patients. I see it all the time with the people I meet and have interviewed for over a decade. Um, and it's totally possible. But that's it. We have to understand what cancer is. And one of the things that you told me years ago, filming you for my one of my documentaries, uh, The Integrative Perspective, which you said is stuck with me um, ever since. You said, when patients come to see me, and they're, they're, they're asking me, how do I get, doc, how do I get rid of this cancer? How do I get rid of it? You told me that you don't really hear them saying that. What you hear them saying is, how do I stop making this cancer? Because we are making cancer every day in our bodies through our choices, consciously or unconsciously. And we have the power with the right education, the right knowledge to stop making cancer. So exactly. talk about that. Talk about what, right. it, and, what, what, and, and, what, what causes cancer in the body and how do we stop making it? Well, um, it, well, think for a moment, think about, suppose you had a, you just found out you had a, a small mass in your pancreas and it was cancer and you are, or on in your, in your colon, on your breast. If it doesn't grow and it doesn't spread, you'll live a normal life. So your real question is not how do I get rid of this, but how do I stop making it? Because that's the problem. And we know that uh, most people that die with cancer from, uh, as a result of having cancer die, and this is not gonna be popular, but I'm sorry, it's true, um, die because of what is called treatment. However, if you read the books, the books say, and this is the secondary number, so I say it's the number two cause, it's metastasis. Is that it has gone from the original site, whether it was breast or pancreas, to other sites, and it just it fills up other organs. So the research I've seen recently is actually most cancer patients don't even die from cancer at all, but actually from heart disease. And I could, I, mm -hmm. well, I, I could be wrong, but that's it, it, that's that's what I saw when I was researching this, like in the last few weeks. Well, well, what happens? Well, what happens? It's interesting. What happens when you look? For, and, and you learn this when you really, uh, pathologists know this, when you look at the final cause of death in somebody, it's kind of a morbid subject, I apologize, but uh, it's usually the heart stops. Okay, here it is. So from nature.com, right? One of the most prestigious medical journals there is. Yeah. At the 10 year plus follow-up, so if they've had a cancer diagnosis, you've had it for 10 plus years, and then you've passed away, that's where uh, from most cancers more more patients die from heart disease than from their primary cancer in prostate colon and uh i have to look up the study here to get the other ones a few other cancers so 
that's what's crazy. Just to illustrate the point you just made that in fact, if the cancer never grows and it's not causing a lot of problems or a lot of pain or a lot of symptoms, which most cancers don't, in fact, you can live a normal life and be totally fine without totally wrecking your body doing, you know, treatments that are going to destroy you. Exactly. So the question, the question is not how do I get rid of this, but how do I stop making it? Because you, you, because this is a sad truth. You go to the surgeon, you got rid of it. Now what? Now it's going to come back. And that's the thing. And that's, that's why there's another thing I often say, and that is, it's not hard getting rid of cancer. The hard part is keeping it gone. Why does it come back? Why does it come back? Why does it recur for so many people? Well, because, um, um, there are, there are small, but 0.1% of any tumor is cancer stem cells. And these are cells that can become new tumors. Okay. So a mature cancer cell cannot become a new, cannot become a new tumor. And in order for a mature cancer cell to actually cause a metastasis or spread, it has to go through what they call epidermal to mesenchymal transition, EMT. Right. So in other words, an epidermal is a mature cell. A mesenchymal cell is a stem cell. So it has to go through that transition. Guess what helps that happen? Guess what makes that happen? Guess what enhances that whole process? Two things, high dose chemotherapy and radiotherapy, radiation therapy. Both of them stimulate epidermal to mesenchymal transition. They also stimulate the tumor microenvironment to be acceptable. So now there's a good nest waiting for this little baby to show up. I mean, all the six steps that are necessary for a successful transition of for, for a successful metastasis are enhanced by high dose or what they what they call maximum tolerated chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So that's why, and this is I, I want everyone to keep this in mind. If someone gets a cancer, let's say it's breast. And they say, we're going to do a lumpectomy. And they got the lumpectomy. They took it out. And they say the margins are clean, meaning there's no tumor in the margins. Now they say, we want to do chemo and radiation. And you would say, why? And they'll say, well, just to be sure. And you should say, to be sure of what? Well, to be sure that it doesn't spread. Okay, I get that. And I appreciate that. But can you please tell me, how's that going to happen since the chemo and the radiation can only kill mature tumor cells and you said you already got it all so the only thing left are the are the are the stem cells so please tell me what you're thinking and if you do this you'll get them kicking you out of your office unfortunately because <laughs> that's what they do right i've that's heard that story do. many times yeah if you do start questioning your oncologist they don't like it and they basically yell at you and kick you out unless you get somebody who really deeply cares about you and does deeply care about the truth and is willing to look into these hard questions, uh, which some of them do, like yourself, uh, like me, the the integrative MDs that I work with, and me, the oncologists that I work with, they ask these hard questions and they want to know the truth, and so they're willing right, right. to go down this questioning with you. But if they're not, that's a good sign that maybe, maybe you should uh, question: Are they the right doctor for you? Right, right, right. And and you know, in, integrative uh, is the integrative oncology is what we do so um actually i do i do do a lot of conventional things you'd be surprised for example um you know i had a i had a guy with a com complete blockage of his of his colon there was only one thing we can do and that's surgery nothing else 
There is no, in, there's no non-allopathic, non-conventional way to deal with that. I have a patient with a, a tumors in their brain, a glioblastoma, and it's growing rapidly. We've got to do radiotherapy. We have to do radiation. We can't, you know, I mean, because, you know, with, with glios, you've learned that if you go in, the more you cut it, the more it grows. It's almost like a, like a fungus. You know, it's like uh, it makes it grow more. So you try to use radiotherapy. If I have someone who's got a, a tumor with ex- and it's causing excruciating pain, we've got to do radio radiation therapy. We've got to decrease that pain. So I will use conve- and, and chemo. If, 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 if we have an impending blockage of a vital function like breathing, eating, bowel movements, etc., or a large tumor burden or whatever, and I have to use chemo, I'll use it, but I'll use it rationally. I'll use it with low doses and insulin. Why? Just as we just discussed, cancer cells have 15, uh, anywhere from 7 to 19 times more insulin receptors. Therefore, um, if I do insulin potentiation therapy, what I do is I wind up, I wind up killing, ju- I, targeting the cancer cell and not the non-cancer cell so that the, people don't lose their hair, they don't lose their lunch, they don't lose their bone marrow. So um, anyway, so we do use, that's what an integrative approach is. And so, so if you're going to get the, a second- on the On the insulin, before, because I want to stay on that for a second, on the insulin potentiation therapy, which is low-dose chemo, when I researched this years ago, correct me if I'm wrong, I found research that said it's something like 10,000 times more effective than just high-dose chemo, which is what most doctors use. Low-dose insulin potentiated therapy, which is very small amounts targeted up to like one-eighth or one-quarter of the amount, correct me if I'm wrong, was like 10,000, 1,000 or 10,000 times, I have to look it up. Uh, It was a, a... significantly more effective and less detrimental to the body. Is that right? Exactly. No, no, that's it. And, and in fact, and why don't doctors know was, this and why don't they use it? Right. And, and when I talk to oncologists, right, because sometimes they'll talk to me. And when they talk to me and I tell them I had an, I remember my mother's oncologist said to me, he was obligated to talk to me because I was her son, but he talked to me and he said, well, God, why don't we know this? And I felt bad for the guy, but I said, well, you want me to teach you? And he goes, no. So I, I didn't feel bad anymore. Cause why don't you want me to teach you? But anyway, um, what, you know, one of the, um, I think what you, what, 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 what you were alluding to there um, is that uh, and I try to, I'll try to make this as, brief as possible. But one of the things that the insulin does when it binds to an insulin receptor is it changes the permeability of the cell membrane so that it becomes much, much more permeable. Okay. So if the cancer cells have more insulin receptors and you give insulin to someone who has not eaten that day, so they've been fasting for a minimum of 12 hours. Now we know it's better to do it for 24 hours, but if fasting for 12 hours, at least now um, you give some insulin the same amount of insulin that you would that you your body would produce during a, a normal meal, those cancer cells have more insulin receptors and a seventy percent higher affinity for insulin. So they're going to grab them and hold on to them, and that's going to change their permeability. So now they become permeable. So ins, insulin potentiation therapy, which began in 1936, 
first cancer patient treated in 1943 went on to die from something else 30 years later, not from cancer. Okay, they didn't have chemo in those days. Guess what they used? Mercury and arsenic, low doses of mercury and low doses of arsenic because they didn't have any chemo. That was the only poisons they had. So in other words, the insulin allows you to open the door. So what you were referring to is that what we find is that the reason they do maximum tolerated chemo is because the cell is going to have every, its membranes and everything is going to be resisting the chemo from going in. But once you connect with the insulin receptor, now the, uh, the membrane becomes permeable and anything in the environment, and this is why we eat, I mean, this is why one of the purposes of insulin, right? We eat food and we would need to absorb it. It needs to get into our cells. We need to get those nutrients into our cells. So one of the things that happens, and basically the enzyme is called delta-9 desaturase, which is stimulated by insulin binding to an insulin receptor. That changes the stearic acids into oleic acids and then that, and then it becomes permeable. The food goes in, but so does chemo, so does arsenic, so does mercury, anything will go in. So that's why. So you actually get a higher intra-tumor concentration of the chemotherapy than you would had you given high dose. And the reason they, they call it maximum tolerated is because if they gave you any more, you would die. So they give you as much as you can tolerate without dying and hoping that it's going to force itself in. And all you had to do was give a little bit of insulin, give a 10% dose, and you'll get more inside. Yep. And I found so it in why, 1981... Why? 1981 Georgetown University Medical School study showed the chemotherapy drug methotrexate had the ability to enter cancer, cancer cells at a rate 10,000 times greater when the cells were prepared with insulin. Uh, this right. article also goes on to say normally IPT patients also do not go bald or experience severe nausea or organ damage like when you do the high-dose chemo. Was, was the author La Salva? Um, I have to go find the actual paper here. This was an article that oh, was written okay. about yeah. it. In, uh, in George, Georgetown. Okay. Well, La Salva did a similar one with methotrexate alone, insulin alone, and then methotrexate and insulin. He had to go, by the way, back in those days, you have to understand something. Back in those days, and even today, pharmaceutical companies won't pay for this research. So Dr. La Salva, who is a well-known doctor, oncologist the uh in asco had to go back to his home country of uruguay and go to the university center there to get it funded and that's when he did that study on breasts with methotrexate and um so this might be different this is uh, if this is georgetown i'll have to read that that sounds great but so it was ten thousand times right and the other thing is this keep this in mind too and very important everyone knows that the doctor will try one chemotherapy and then it'll work for a while and then it'll fail then he'll try another protocol it'll work for a while it'll fail another one it'll same thing and what he says is i'm afraid that we've turned on the multi-drug resistant gene the multi-drug resistant gene and what that is basically is that when you you give high maximum tolerated chemotherapy the cell has learned to push it out quicker than you can get it in that's all that means it's pushing the chemo out faster than you can get it in. So when you go through the insulin door, which the cancer cell can't close because it needs it for survival, 
But when you go through the insulin door, you can go in quicker, more quickly. So oftentimes when I've had oncologists tell a patient, look, there's nothing else I can do. None of this seems to work, but go see this guy. I don't know what he does, but it works. You know, one of those weird things. But so they come to me. I use the exact last protocol that, that their oncologist had used, that exact last protocol with 10% of the dose and insulin, and it works. So that's the amazing thing. Anyway, but that's not all we do. What we've done, we've gone beyond that. And uh, I've said, I, you know, I did, because my goal is to never have to eventually not have to do uh, low dose chemo at all. So we do insulin potentiated curcumin therapy, insulin potentiated quercetin therapy, insulin potentiated um, um, uh, amygdalin therapy. So, you know, any kind of botanical agent, I want to make sure that it hits the target. And one of the big, one of the big problems with curcumin is, and we know this from um, a, uh, what was that naturopathic doctor? He's, he's really amazing. Um, uh, anyway, it's, Anyway, I can't remember right now, but anyway, really a, a great, great researcher. Um, he's not practicing anymore, but he, he was looking at curcumin therapy um, and he found that he had to get up to 20 as a single agent with cancer, curcumin from turmeric. He found that he had to get up to, with some patients up to 2,800, uh, 2,800 milligrams. That's a lot of curcumin. Yeah, and usually people that get more than 1,200, they start getting orange you know, orange skin and they start getting, yeah, you see, it's not, it's not much fun anyway. But, um, so what, what, what do we do? We just use insulin and we I can do, I can keep it down around 200, 300 milligrams and, and use insulin and we can get really effective, um, responses with, uh, using curcumin and, and, uh, in that way. Um, okay. So I want to back up. Um, basically I think we could say, the underlying condition that leads to cancer is the damage of DNA and mitochondrial die-off and dysfunction, right? If we wanted to simplify it, like like the simplest way to explain one of the core underlying conditions that leads to cells becoming cancerous, would you would you say that? Well, no, except the, not the DNA, just the mitochondria. Well, well, isn't the DNA being damaged? Like, let's say. Let's say I put a carcinogen into my body. Isn't it damaging the DNA at a cellular level as well as killing the mitochondria? And right, right. That, yeah, it, yeah. And so I, but it, just correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't that DNA damage part of the, the dysfunction of the mitochondria that leads to the die off and the, um, and the cell chronically fermenting and becoming cancerous. Am I staying that correctly or am I staying that wrong? Well, no, but the, I, that's almost, almost the, uh, the conventional uh, idea of the somatic mutation theory. And what Thomas Seafried, and, and I'm, a lot of people may have heard of him, Thomas mm-hmm. Seafried at Boston College, yep. has, he's a PhD scientist. He's kind of picked up where uh, Otto Warburg left off. Right, I just and interviewed him done, the other day. And, he's, and it's, huh, did you? I just interviewed him the other you day. You interviewed yeah. him? Yep. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So what, what he's done is it's called cybred experiments, where they take a healthy cell and a cancer cell. And if it's genetic, if it's in the genes, 
then by taking the genes out of the cancer cell and replacing it with the into that healthy cell, it should turn into cancer and it doesn't. And it, it goes doesn't. back to being normal. Exactly. And, and then you take out the healthy genes and you put them into the uh, and you and you and you, and you remove the cancer genes uh, and you put the healthy genes in and you've got defective mitochondria. That cell either dies or becomes cancer if it can upregulate right correctly. Yep. So it's not in the genes. And, and that's kind of, so he wrote the book called Cancer is a Metabolic Disease. Again, I wouldn't use the word disease because I think, and I also don't like the word pathology. I don't like the word pathology because that sounds it's as if something's going wrong. Nothing's ever going wrong. The body cannot make mistake. Remember, please never forget who made this body. Okay, God. Nature does not make mistakes. Our bodies never make mistakes. They always function under the law of necessity. They're doing what's necessary, okay? They can be overwhelmed, and that's what happens. We get overwhelmed, but we don't make mistakes. So, yeah. But anyway, so that, that, that's the thing. Okay, so if we go with more of uh, Professor Steve Fried's uh, theory, and this is published in um, PubMed. He has uh, documentation on this is that it's it's a uh, mitochondrial metabolic disease and actually Correct. has nothing to do with the DNA at all. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. Isn't so, that interesting? I mean, it's really interesting. So let's say if that's the case, then then talk about what kills off the mitochondria that causes the cell to become cancerous. Okay, so the mitochondria, because that is the, the organelle is a term for a little organ inside of a cell. So the organelle of the, called the mitochondria, um, in order to make ATP, requires six oxygen molecules and one glucose for every glucose. Now, the thing about oxygen, oxygen is a double-edged sword. It's really, really important, but I wouldn't light a match around it. Okay, so because it's flammable. So out here in the, in the, in the macro world, oxygen is flammable. On the micro world, in the biological world, it's also, quote, flammable. In other words, it's dangerous. And what I mean by that is when, uh, in, in fact, the reason, why my, well, the reason why oxygen is so useful to make energy is because it's got all these extra electrons. So as it enters in to the mitochondria, it splits apart into two superoxide anions, right? Now, the, the mitochondria use that, of course, and they grab the energy from it and all that. So the reason that one glucose, instead of making two ATP, can do, well, 36 inside the mitochondria. 36 is because of the help of the oxygen. As a consequence, those oxygen molecules, molecules can become what are called free radicals or reactive oxygen species. And so mitochondria are full of reactive oxygen species. They're full of... Um, of free radicals and therefore they're very they're damaging and that's why think about it think about the energy you have at 7 a.m versus 7 p.m that's because your mitochondria are no longer producing 36 they're kind of worn out so now maybe you're producing 31 or 29 right and then by 10 p.m you're producing whatever so the point is so what happens when you go to sleep part of the things when you go to sleep if you stopped eating three to five hours before you went to bed, you're not absorbing glucose. 
because your gut's empty. Well, if your gut's empty, you're not absorbing glucose, you're still breathing, so you're getting those six oxygen molecules, where's your body gonna get the glucose from? It's gonna recycle damaged stuff inside the cell, and one of the damaged things are damaged mitochondria. So it's called autophagy or autophagy, and it recycles, eats up, and, and it gets rid of those. And the beautiful thing about mitochondria is that they have their own DNA. So the minute you tear one apart, it makes a new one. So now you wake up in the morning with all these fresh mitochondria that are pumping out ATP, whereas when you went to bed, they were kind of sluggish. So that's, that's the thing. But so the, the answer to the question, Nathan, is that because the mitochondria have all these free radicals in them, they're the most vulnerable. So if you live in the 21st century and you're getting exposed to non-organic foods with chemicals and heavy metals and you're getting exposed to electromagnetic frequencies and and you're stressed out so you've got all this cortisol and adrenaline and all this other stuff and you're yeah, all that stuff you put it all together and the the most vulnerable part of the cell is the mitochondria so they get kicked off first now when Otto Warburg was doing his experiments they didn't know what mitochondria were all he knew was he would take a a group a a, a, a petri dish of skin cells, a Petri dish of ovarian cells, of prostate cells, or whatever, turned down the oxygen 30, 40%, it became malignant cancer. He turned back up the oxygen, it came back to normal. So he called cancer a failure in cellular respiration, right? And for that reason, now we know it's the mitochondria. So that's kind of how it happens. So mitochondrial dysfunction is actually directly, uh, related to multiple diseases, right? Autism, cardiovascular disease, dementia, diabetes, cancer, Parkinson's disease, uh, early aging, you name it. And we need, so how how I understand mitochondria, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it's kind of like it's more than it's it's been described as like the battery of the cell but i know it, it's it's much more than that but i it helps me understand and explain it to people it's like the yeah. it's like the battery in your cell right and it does a lot of different yeah. functions a lot of communication a lot of different things and in your cell let's say you have you know hundreds of mitochondria it's like hundreds of batteries uh, or thousands even depends right um how many how many right. mitochondria are in a single cell but Right. Depends how healthy you are, how healthy your cells are, you know, how mm-hmm. I don't know how many mitochondria I can't remember are in a healthy cell on average. Well, Do you depend- know that number? Well, no, no, that was exactly right. I mean, a heart cell versus a a breast cell, a heart cell is going to need a lot more mitochondria because it's doing a lot of energy. So there's a differing amounts in different cells. Okay. Different- so, so, so it's like batteries. So let's say you had a big vehicle like a uh, that, that took like 100 batteries to run it or something, right? Or a house or whatever it was that took a lot of batteries to run it. So those batteries have a potential. They, let's say they're running at a hundred percent and you know, boom, all your electricity, everything's running fantastic. They're running at their maximum potential. Well, what if those batteries are only running at 50% of their potential? And on top of that, 50% of those batteries didn't work at all, or they died off. And that's what we're experiencing today, right? In this modern disease epidemic, this chronic disease pandemic that we're experiencing today is a massive dysfunction of mitochondria in most people's cells and a lack of 
uh, mitochondria inside most people's cells. And both of these things are primarily in our control, right? Where we can actually build more mitochondria in the cell, the quantity, and we can improve mitochondrial function within that quantity. And most of this, the, the research is so exciting today is like most of this is literally in our control through diet and lifestyle. Exactly. And what is probably the most common symptom of any, quote, disease? Fatigue. Mm. I don't have any energy. I don't have any Okay, so it is mitochondria. That's it. And remember, I want to remind everybody about fever. There's two main reasons why we get fevers, okay? Uh, what Number one is um, our immune system gets woken up. Our, our macrophages wake up, our natural killer cells wake up, everything gets turned on, our innate immune system becomes powerful and ready to go, like it's just, it's ready to go, it's got its armor on, okay, that's number one, right, now number two is that now that you're, you've got an injury of some sort, that's why you got a fever, right, you got a bacteria got in you, or whatever, whatever happened, you got stabbed, or whatever happened, you're starting to get a fever, now you need extra energy, because you not only need the energy to run your cellular work, you need the energy to heal. And so that's, so one of the things we have learned is that um, temperature causes something, uh, a phenomenon, uh, a, 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 a nuclear product called, um, from the nucleus, called um, heat shock proteins. And heat shock proteins, in turn, stimulate mitochondrial proliferation. So the reason this is, the reason I bring this up is because probably the most important best treatment we've ever had for cancer was Dr. William Coley a hundred years ago. And it was called Coley's toxin. And he would inject, he would inject <clears throat> not killed, but uh, heated up uh, strep pyogenes and serratia marcescens, which are two bacteria. He heated them up so they couldn't colonize and cause an infection, but they still caused the fever. And he would inject it and keep you shaking chills for two weeks, three weeks, and when you were done, the cancer was gone. Sounds like a fun, cold. sounds like a great time. <laughs> right. But you can ask, I've talked but, to four but, cancer but, patients and yeah. they've been going through it for years. And they said, I'll gladly take two, three weeks of that over what I've been exactly. doing. Exactly. Well, and, and there is, and, there is assisted supported hyperthermia in some clinics. Uh, where well, uh, we do that. Exactly. Yeah, at, guided at heat, heating up the body. Also, you can do it safely in sauna where you can, you know, you're not going to get uh, the exact same results you would as from Coley's toxins or from, you know, guy, you know, safely doctor guided hyperthermia, which I'm saying safely a hundred times because right. you can die from that if you're not, you know, very, very safe with it, but sauna regulated in, in, you know, uh, safe amounts of safe temperatures, 170 degrees, for example, Fahrenheit, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 minutes at a time does the same thing. It, forces your body through hormesis, right? Healthy stress, a healthy stress response through heat shock proteins to, uh, to or for your body to generate heat shock proteins, just like you were talking yeah. about. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's very important. So think about it. If you generate, and this is what I learned from Dr. Kobayashi in, uh, in Japan, and it's a system of hyperthermia that we use. It's a six hour system. We keep people up for six hours. We have a rectal probe thermometer to make sure that their core body temperature is at the, at the temperature that we want, and et cetera. Um, but uh, here's what he did, and this was very interesting. Um, uh, he, was, he was a PhD first, then an MD. Uh, what he would do is he would take a biopsy of a tumor, 
before the treat before the hyperthermia and after the hyperthermia and then he would look with an electron microscope and it, before the hyperthermia and the electron microscope which is you know as you guys know you can see hundreds of thousands of times higher so he would saw just a few shrunken fragmented mitochondria after the hyperthermia it was plush full of mitochondria so and that's when he looked into heat shock proteins etc and he figured out why that happened but in effect what did you do you restored mitochondrial function so the hyperthermia is not a cancer killing a cancer eliminating therapy it's a cancer reversal therapy and you're turning it back into it and imagine i learned this from a japanese guy who grew up buddhist and he's telling me well think of it as the prodigal son you don't want to kill him you want to bring him back home i said what is it am i hearing this from a japanese guy but yeah i was kind of amazing but that he used that analogy for me to understand a cancer is not something foreign it's just us in trouble trying to adapt trying to survive so let's restore it back to the way it needs to be and it'll come home anyway it's a great it's a great idea and i i i wanted to bring that up you know one thing i never answered and i just want to do real quick you you said what is the mdh so after i was in trouble in um i mean i was not in trouble but i was always going before the board trying to defend myself in uh, in new york and they, I, they uh, don't like they don't like you talking about this stuff, do they? Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they don't want you to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so the board was always calling me saying, "Why are you giving vitamin C? Why are you?" And IPT, I had to defend IPT in front of the board. So I had an hour and two hours Is with an New endocrinologist, York? huh? This is New York. Yeah, I had two hours with an endocrinologist and two hours with an oncologist. And I answered all their questions. And at the end, they go, do you have any papers? Do you have any proof? I said, sure, I'll send them to you. And two weeks later, I got a note saying, case dismissed. So it was cool. So I actually successfully defended IPT in New York. However, it was too exhausting. So if you go to Arizona or to Nevada, which are the only two states, and you are already a medical doctor or a DO, and you know homeopathy, then you can get life licensed under the MDH, which is a medical, which is the homeo, the age is homeopathy. And then if you're, if you're, if you're under that, if your license is under that board and one of the, one of the other doctors in the hospital says, this guy's giving vitamin C, my board would say, great, <laughs> instead of calling me. So that's what the MDH is. So yeah. you got to have both. Yeah. So, I mean, you do, you do a lot of natural adjuvant what people call alternative, but I, I think alternative is the wrong word, uh, therapies for cancer patients, high dose vitamin C, curcumin, as you said, low dose IPT, which is, you know, more of integrative conventional diet. Let's talk diet for a minute. Now I know we could talk, we could do a whole separate episode on diet and maybe we will at some point, but let's talk about yeah, what yeah, you have should. discovered is the diet that promotes cancer. Uh, let's start there. What diet promotes cancer the most? Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love Healing Life. At healinglife.net, you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors and survivors, exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at healinglife.net. 
Net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. Go to HealingLife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science, about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity, all of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So I invite you to set up a free trial at HealingLife.net and I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. Well, um, high, high sugar, high sugar is it, and also um, high um, f- unhealthy fats. And this brings up something very important. Um, well, first of all, most, most, if you were to look at the standard American diet, it is <clears throat> deficient in all the phytonutrients that our cells need for health. It's deficient in them. And it's high in the things we don't need, which is too much sugar and too much, uh, what do you call it? It's not even natural sugars. It's, it's, it's processed sugars and high fats. On the other hand, if you eat a French fries, which is full of aldehydes, which is heated up fats, they are free radicals that are made of fat. So they cross the cell membrane and they go in and out, but they last for minutes instead of a nanosecond. So can you believe it? It's safer to smoke a cigarette than to eat a French fry. But anyway. Of, of course you're not. Probably a, people, high people, fat people diet. Take, people might I take should. that and go, oh, Dr. Lloyd said it's okay to smoke cigarettes. Of course you're not promoting smoking cigarettes. No. But but you're you're making a point. I, I, I just got to clarify for some someone out there that's like, hey, it's okay to smoke cigarettes. We know cigarettes cause cancer, period. Right. No, you're not right, recommending right. that. Period. But... <laughs> Uh, just making the point that eating, you know, highly cooked foods in oil, for example, seed oils, uh, is creating these aldehydes, which are leaving, staying in the body for minutes, which to elaborate on that is it's creating these reactive, reactive oxygen, more, more damage, right? More cellular damage because it's in your body longer, uh, than like the puff of a cigarette, which gets cleaned out quickly. Exactly. But but when someone smokes, so to be fair to eating, you know, greasy food versus or fried food or you're food right, yeah. oils to smoking a cigarette, you know, usually however many puffs, I used to smoke two packs a day, right? When I was, even before I was 18 and uh, highly addicted. Yeah. And thank God I haven't touched cigarette in years in, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years. Uh, you smoke one and you're ta- you know, you smoke a whole cigarette. That's a lot of puffs. And then, you know, if, if you were like me, you were smoking two packs a day. That's a lot of puffs. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. uh, that's right. a cancer diagnosis waiting to happen. Yeah. 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 But I really think it's high fat, high fat, high sugar and low um, and low nutrients. So basically I think the average person, average American is overfed and undernourished. But I keep, you know what, I keep, um, uh, and, and what I wanted to say about fat and mitochondria real quickly is this, is that the mitochondria, which we talked about, and by the way, this is very, very important. 
when they look at what they call longevous animals in biology. Longevous means they live long. So an elephant would be in there, um, a wildebeest, a horse, uh, humans are you know in there, um, longevous versus animals like rabbits, dogs, et cetera. Et cetera. Okay. When they look at what is the difference, why does the elephant live 60 to 90 years and the rabbit live, what is it, a year, you know, or at the most, or two years, they don't live long. Why? Well, one is, there. Are, if you listen to the rabbit, a European rabbit, rabbit like, a European rabbit lives nine years, is what they say. Oh, okay. Nine, to, okay, so nine years, years versus as a pet. Is, 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 as a pet? Five to eight okay, years so, as a pet, yep. Okay. All right, so five to eight years versus 60 to 90 years. Why? And what they found out is this, and this is in their research. Longevity is inversely related to the peroxidizability index of the mitochondrial membrane. What does that mean? Okay, what that means is inversely related means it's the opposite. So peroxidizability means it can be oxidized. So how easy can the mitochondrial membrane become oxidized? The ease with which it can become oxidized determines how long you'll live. Now the mitochondrial membrane, just like the membrane of the nucleus and the membrane of the whole cell is a double membrane. All other organelles have a single membrane. It's a double membrane. And uh, so the point is this, since we're making 37 million new cells every second per second and, re and recycling 37 million new cells, uh, old cells, okay, we've got to have a good pool of fat because 50% of the, what they call the plasma membrane around a cell is fat healthy fat and you don't want that fat to be from KFC or Pizza Hut. Okay, that's not where you want that fat to be. You want that fat to be from chia seeds, from flax seeds, from uh, um, uh, from walnuts. You you want that. Now, what about, what there's about also from meat? so this, Yeah, well the the problem with the meat is that you're not going to eat it raw. You're going to eat it cooked. Now, how are you going to cook it? Are you going to steam it or boil it? Neither. You're going to fry it grill it i mean i mean not many people eat boiled meat but if you did all you then you would not pr produce the aldehydes on the fat if you boiled your meat or you steamed your meat but or if you it grill raw. it i know the, it, i know the liver king it. recommends eating raw liver uh but uh, that's a whole other story <laughs> right right so yeah yeah so i mean you could do that and and you know and look but even though when we look at the animals that are, you know, because, you know, and I, I, when people say they're on a carnivore diet, it just drives me crazy. You're not, by the way, anybody out there, you think you're on a carnivore diet? You're not. Unless you're picking up animals and eating them alive. If you're not eating them alive, you're not on a carnivore diet. If you're eating their corpses, then you're on a scavenger diet. You're on the, a, dog, a dog diet, a, hy, a hyena diet. Okay, so let's just keep it let's define our terms so if we're going to communicate 
A carnivore, a carnivore eats the animal alive while it's dying, drinking the blood, eating the organs. That's a carnivore. Okay. All right. But okay. But anyway, they, they um, eat the fermented plants in the in the intestines that the, the herbivore ate. Yeah. Which is where they, you know, get their phytonutrients. They eat fermented exactly. plants. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They don't eat plants in the wild. They eat bone. They eat the marrow. They eat the brains. They eat the eyeballs. They eat the asshole. They eat the intestines, the colon, the muscle, the tendons, the ligaments. Um, they eat everything. They eat just about everything from that animal that they possibly can. Real yeah, carnivores. Ovaries, ovaries, testicles, things like that. And they love it. And you know, if they, they, they love it. Anything for the. They love it. They love it. And that's just like it. And they, you know, and, and, and instinct drives them there. And that's what they eat. That's a real carnivore. So if you're out, if you're on a corpse diet, that's different. So call it a corpse. Just call it a corpse diet. That's fine. And but, so it would, of course, be better to eat the corpse raw because you're going to still have all the enzymes and you will have not produced any aldehydes or Maillard chemicals. So you would get the benefit that the, that the dog and the cat get. Right, I mean the the dogs in the wild, because they eat the corpses. But think about it: lions, panthers, who are carnivores, dogs, uh, wolves, hyenas, who are scavengers, live fifteen years. Horses live twenty-eight to forty years. Chimpanzees live fifty-five years. Elephants live sixty to ninety years. And who are the stronger ones? Well, it takes what, six, seven lions to bring down one elephant? Okay, so who's stronger? And where did that elephant get all of its protein? Where did that horse get all of its protein? I'm just telling you, we, we've been fed a lie. Okay, all protein originates in plants. In fact, all talking about food right now, there are three macronutrients carbohydrates, amino acids, and fats. All three of them originate in plants. I like that you said, I like that you said amino acids instead of protein. And, and I, I literally was saying this exact same thing earlier today. Uh, I was having this thought in really? my mind. Like, why do we say protein is a macronutrient when it's really amino acids? So I'll let you talk about it because it's fascinating. I literally was having this conversation with myself earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I was listening to you. I don't know, but, uh, but, but go ahead, go ahead. Finish that thought. But, because um, I think it's important. But, but those are what, what we call macronutrients and then there are micronutrients. So the, so um, uh, glucose, which is the fundamental carbohydrate is the end product of photosynthesis we all know what that is light hitting tree the tree's been breathing in carbon dioxide and pulling up the water through its roots right so you've got carbon dioxide and water and then light hits it turns it into glucose and oxygen right so the plant breathes out the oxygen and makes glucose and the glucose has all the stored energy so that's the carbohydrate carbohydrates are energy it's a macronutrient but carbohydrates are not only used for energy. They're also part of structure. We have what are called glycoproteins and, and stuff like that. So they're very important. Uh, so they're not just energy. Um, but anyway, so they, and then there's fats, 
and then there's amino acids. Now, amino acids, when you string them together, it becomes uh, like two amino acids is called a dipeptide because they're put together by peptide bonds, tripeptide, tetrapeptide, pentapeptide. Anyway, anything up to 50 is called a peptide. When it gets to 100 or more amino acids, we call it a protein. The body makes about 30,000 proteins. The body makes about 297,000 peptides. Now, peptides are the, one of the ways in which the body, the cells communicate to each other. So they communicate to each other through various ways. So that's one of the ways they do it, peptides. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> and then the third macronutrient is fats. And that comes from seeds and nuts, you know, and nuts are seeds. So that comes from seeds, basically. And that's where all oils come from originally. Now, all animals have what are called essential fatty acids or essential um, uh, amino acids, what they call essential proteins, uh, but essential amino acids, really. Uh, so for humans, we have nine. There's nine amino acids we cannot make. We have to get those. But if we get those, we can make the other 11, right? So a dog will have a different group of essential amino acids. Animals can only make about 10 or 11 max. Plants make all 20. And an amino acid is hard to come by. Not even plants can make them. An amino acid is when nitrogen is fixed, connected to a carboxylic acid group. And guess who does that? Our friends, the microorganisms that live on plants, that the, live on the, the roots root of plants and all over yep. the planet. Yep. And the so those system. are the guys that do it. They're also the ones that make B12, right? So, I mean, they're really quite tough. But anyway, that's what an amino acid is. So it's made, so they originate in plants. So we have to understand that. That's why the, the plant-eating animals are the biggest, strongest, strongest, bigger, and they live longer. So, I mean, and that's just not an opinion. You have to understand, that's just biology. So... If you consider being strong and living long important qualities, then you decide which diet you would like. So if somebody, I know you promote a primarily raw food diet, uh, primarily plant-based yeah. or vegan diet, uh, nutrient-dense, lots of phytonutrients. Uh, you teach this to your cancer patients. You've seen great results with it. But on the meat question, if somebody, because also when you cook meat, uh, what happens is you create heterocyclical means, right? Which are carcinogenic. So yeah. another, you know, I don't know if that is, is a form of an aldehyde or not, but I know it's a, basically it, it can lead to cancer when you're like, uh, barbecuing, for example, your meat, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But do you think that, Somebody could eat a, um, if they boiled all their meat or they steamed it, that they could still be healthy and eliminate cancer in that yes. regard. Yeah. Yes, I do. I do. And I think, uh, and I've seen it. And, I, and, and, uh, and what, what did that diet look like? Well, it was, it turned out to be fish. Uh, and it, ha and it was in Thailand where I had people that simply would not stop eating fish just wouldn't but 
the thing about fish as opposed to almost any other flesh is that steaming it is okay it still tastes good so you can steam it and they and would you steam can eat, it you so, can eat fish raw actually yeah, and, yeah and you could eat it raw right 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 now that's another reason why you need to have a very very low ph which means high acid a very very acidic stomach what's very interesting about the human stomach is that the the, the normal healthy ph of a human stomach is 1.5 to 2 which is exactly the same interestingly enough as animals who eat carrion which is decaying corpses like like vultures and and hyenas they have you know we we have very very low but for us it's different it um one of the other very very important things of an acidic stomach is this is that the acid in our stomach is necessary not only to digest uh proteins but also to prevent parasites from getting in and other bacteria from getting in to your body so it kills them off right but it also does something very special that is uh and, and we see this with the elderly elderly start to be elderly people start to become anemic no matter what even those who still eat raw liver drink if you drink blood squeeze the blood out of an animal and drink it uh you're still going to get anemic if you're older and that's because we don't have enough stomach acid mm. and it's the stomach acid that converts ferric into ferrous so it can be absorbed so i remember doing rounds as a medical student and the professor said oh this patient has anemia of old age and i always huh what's that wow and they never told me after medical school i found out oh it's because after the age of 40 uh, we stopped making so much hydrochloric acid so one of the things i advise everyone to do who's 40 and older take a get you can go get hydrochloric acid at any at any store and uh, order it online and take one or two pills if you take two pills and it burns a little bit then you go back to one but but that's it so that you're why because you want a very acidic stomach so that when you the minerals that are in the plants need the acid to put them in a form that they can be absorbed that's very very important to keep in mind so you don't want to not be able to get that what about <clears throat> what about apple cider vinegar or lemon water, these kinds of things that are already acidic, they help balance the pH in the body, but they help to help to uh, support the acid in the stomach, don't they? They do, they do. And apple cider actually is a pH of two, so it's good. So I know, apple I cider. Had, I had really bad indigestion uh, because of terrible diet and lifestyle for my teenage years, and my stomach, you know, always. Uh, acid reflux and stomach yeah. pain and all of that. And I found kombucha and I started brewing my own kombucha back in 2007, I think 2007, 2008. I found apple cider vinegar, was taking apple cider vinegar and I was taking, you know, drink kombucha and or apple cider vinegar with honey and some warm water um, every day for months. And something clicked where my, my acid in my stomach got back into balance and uh. all my digestive, all my indigestion issues, acid reflux completely went away. And knock on wood to this day, I've not had any issues with it. Right. Wow. Well, most, you know, you bring up a very interesting point because most of the time, um, the, 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 the way to resolve the, the treatment for like heartburn is not to stop the acid production, but to drink some acid, which is in, you know, which is what he was drinking. 
Um, and uh, it's because what happens is just, and, and carbohydrates can do that a lot. Carbohydrates, what they, uh, and, and when you get really full, it opens up the lower part of the sphincter from your esophagus. And if you open up that sphincter, then the acid goes into your esophagus and it burns. And when you get that chronically, that's when we see esophageal cancers. And esophageal cancers are, I would say, 90, I, I don't know the exact statistic, but from just my clinical experience, at least 95% are in the lower one-third of the esophagus. It's just from chronic reflux. Because remember, one of the things that cancer does is, um, uh, one of the things that, one of the other underlying physiological events of cancer, other than having a lack of mitochondrial function, is chronic inflammation. So chronic inflammation. And in fact, all of the inflammatory cytokines that are being produced by cancer cells are what make the tumor grow. And so cancer had been called in the past the wound that wouldn't heal because it basically is an inflammatory process. And by the way, another, another interesting understanding of cancer is, is this, is that um, if you get a cut and the blood starts coming out of your hand because you got a cut, that blood is not going to the tissues it was intended to. And what is the blood? It's carrying oxygen. So therefore, those tissues are not getting oxygen. So that stimulates a pathway called HIF1-alpha, which is hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha, which in turn stimulates a whole cascade of events, including angiogenesis, tissue proliferation, so that's what's turned on in cancer. That is what's always turned on in cancer. And what do we find? Now, this is very interesting. The, in, 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 in all of biology, you will always find ways that uh, things are being modulated or being fine-tuned. So estrogens have progesterones, right? Progesterone will undo what estrogen does, right? Uh, and then uh, you've got uh, somatum, uh, tropin and somatomedin, you know, you got growth hormone and the thing that turns it off. So there's always, there's, a, there's always uh, a fine um, modulation. Wait, um, what was I just talking about? The, uh, oh, HIF1-alpha, yeah. So <clears throat> the enzyme systems that turn off the HIF1-alpha, right, which is what gets turned on when you're bleeding to heal a wound, you need HIF1-alpha. It's called the dioxygenases. The cofactor necessary for the dioxygenases to work is ascorbate, which is vitamin C. Vitamin C, yep. And what we know about everybody with cancer is that, and Dr. Kobayashi has proven this, is that low, three things, low vitamin A, low vitamin C, and low cyclic AMP. Now, how the heck are you going to get cyclic AMP in your body? You're not. You're not, you gotta to go to a doctor who knows and can give it to you IV. And guess where you can't find it? In the United States of America, you cannot find it. Where, where do you get it from naturally? Where's it from, from your diet? Well, no. From plants, from yeah, no, your body naturally, Yeah, our body, every cell makes cyclic AMP. It's what they call a second messenger. So, and the reason it's so important, what Dr. Kobayashi found out is that the cyclic AMP to the cyclic GMP ratio is reversed in cancer than from health. So everything he does, he tries to restore the cyclic AMP superiority or, or higher numbers. Now, 
what I mean by second messenger is when, let's say, testosterone or estrogen binds to an estrogen or testosterone receptor, the second messenger inside the cell, it might be the third or fourth, but it is cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP is involved in every, almost every, everything that happens in cells, almost needs cyclic AMP. It's, it's like, and you never hear about it. I don't know why, but you never hear about it. But um, it's, it's very, very important. And so one of the reasons, one of the things I learned from Dr. Kobayashi was um, back in those days. Now, he, the stuff that he was researching back in 30, 40 years ago, they're just now starting to research. Um, and um, was uh, we, we used to have to give theophylline because it was a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. So now phosphodiesterase inhibitors are a big deal in science. Now we used to have to use theophylline, which is uh, for people with asthma and they would get a rapid heart rate, but we did that to keep their cyclic AMP from turning into the GMP. So we had to do that. Um, I'll give you an example of a phosphodiesterase inhibitor is Viagra or uh, Cialis, right? Those are phosphodiesterase. So they're really important. We now know about them. He was doing it 35, it's a long time ago, it's a long time ago. But at my clinic and Oasis of Healing, uh, we do that. We do, I learned from him and we do that. It's a six hour hyperthermia process, um, very controlled. Our nurses are like open heart surgery nurses who are, you know, amazing. Um, they, they, the questions they ask me are like amazing. So they're very, very good. Yeah, I've, I've been to your clinic in Arizona and, um you guys not only treat patients, but you teach them, which I love. You, you teach them how to eat, how to change their diet, how to fast. We didn't even talk about fasting, man. We got to do a, we got to do a part two to this. Um, there's so many other things I want to ask you about and talk with you about you. Maybe we'll do a diet one. I mean, just diet. Yeah. Just a diet one. That'd be great for part two. Um, so, so I'd love to do that. And so for your clinic in Arizona, if people want to check that out, uh, where do they go for that? Well, that's an N. I, I, I can't believe I used that word, but that, I, I was trying to use proper English. Anoasisofhealing.com. Anoasisofhealing.com. And uh, yeah, we've been there 18 years now. So we've been, it's, it's, yeah. It's doing and are you quite still well. doing, I know you do consults with patients all over the world. Are you still doing those personally? Can people talk to you personally? Yeah. And if you go to drlodi.com, you can get a consultation with me. And uh, what I do is I, um, you know, I, it's as if you and I were sitting down together. I need all your medical records first. I review them. And then we talk. I, I, I always say an hour and an hour. It's an hour, but I've never, ever done an hour. It's a, almost two hours every time. Because how do you stop? You know, everybody's <laughs> life is very complicated. And, you know, so, but anyway, so. <clears throat> Um, and then I give you a plan on how you can stop making cancer, change your lifestyle, but all the treatments that you need that you can do at home. And I ask you to get a biological dentist and I ask you to find a holistic doctor with whom I can collaborate so we can become your team. And then if you want to, then you're always invited to Arizona because we, you know, we're, we're, we've got it all there. Um, but yeah, so you can go to drlody.com for a consultation with, with, with me. Um, 
um, or go to an, now, an oasis of healing and oasis of healing. The reason I have to emphasize that is because people always put in an oasis and they wind up at in Tijuana at Oasis of Hope. So, right. That's, so uh, that's Dr. another easy way to find our. Yep. That's a different doctor. Jimenez. Uh, yep. Dr. Jimenez. Yep. Jimenez. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you're in um, Arizona, so an oasis. Another easy way to find Arizona. our clinic. And oasis, yeah, and anyway, so otherwise, just put stopmakingcancer.com. There you go, stopmakingcancer.com. I love it. Cool. That'll that'll redirect you to an oasis of healing. So stopmakingcancer.com or uh, drlody.com. Uh, and by the way, every every Sunday night, seven p.m. Eastern um, standard is uh, Facebook, TikTok, and instagram uh live stream so and i just answer questions that's awesome uh, i love it what i love about you is you're you're not only an unbelievable wealth of knowledge i don't know how you retain so many pieces of information from so many different places it's actually it i'm always very impressed when i talk to you and and it blows my mind your your uh ability to you know memorize things and pull so many pieces of data and information out uh, of your past and your experience to be able to use it to talk about things in depth. I love it. Um, I always love talking with you, Dr. Lodi. Uh, let's do this again for sure. And uh, appreciate you taking Absolutely, the time. Absolutely, Nathan. Well, yeah. So thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, and I want to tell you something. Just like it takes two hands to clap. It really takes someone who knows what they're knows what they're asking and understands, the, and you understand this as as much as you more than any any conventional doctor. I promise you, you understand it, right? But you're you're up there with all. There's really not much of a difference. You just haven't had your stethoscope and white coat on, and which is a good thing. Don't ever do it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, thank you for having me, and I'm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We'll uh, we'll talk again. Uh, wish everybody so much health and happiness. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Nathan Crane Podcast. If you found value in today's podcast, please share it with others. Subscribe to catch future episodes and leave a rating and a review. For more information or to connect with Nathan, check him out online at www.nathancrane.com and follow him on Facebook and YouTube at Nathan Crane. Until next time, this has been the Nathan Crane Podcast.